Cast. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, folks, today's guest is John Rennie. John is the co-founder, president, and CEO of Peak Demand, Inc., a premier manufacturer of critical components for electrical utilities. He is a former U.S. Navy nuclear submarine officer who made seven deployments during the end of the Cold War. Prior to starting Peak Demand, he led eight manufacturing businesses for three global companies. He is the author of the best-selling leadership books, I Have the Watch, Becoming a Leader Worth Following, and All in the Same Boat, Lead Your Organization Like a Nuclear Submariner. And he is the host of a highly recommended podcast titled Deep Leadership Podcast. Join me in welcoming my guest today, John Rennie. John, thanks for being with us. Hey, Earl. Good to, good to be here. Oh, man. And uh, I am looking forward to this conversation. I always love having uh, a fellow veteran on here and, uh, you know, especially somebody with with your background. I've always had a fascination with submarines and, and the way they work and the people who can operate on them. It's a, a special breed for sure. Um, but before we get into that conversation, I want to start you off. And I'm super excited to hear your answer to this question. When you hear the phrase responsible leadership, what does that mean to somebody who's been through what you've been through? Yeah, you know, responsible leadership is a great is a great term, but what I say always is that the leader is responsible for both the mission and the people. And we sometimes forget that second piece. Uh, but if you look at my background, and we'll talk about it, but life on a submarine, you had to carry out the mission, but you also had to get everybody home safely. So that was a big part of what we did, and that's always stuck with me throughout my career. So it's always been a mission and the people, not just the mission or not just the people. It's both. Yeah. No, and and that's I, I love that you said that because, you know, and I'm sure you probably get asked this question a thousand times throughout your life. But, you know, people always want to know what is what is the difference between management and leadership? And, and, you know, I don't know what your answer to that is, but I always come down to kind of, you know, management's about things, leadership's about people. Uh, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's what it comes right down to is that uh, it is. It's about you manage things and you lead people. And that's just, you know, it, if you think of that mindset or think that of that that methodology or that idea, then you'll understand what leadership is all about. And I always say that leadership is a people business. So it's about people. It's about motivating people to get something done, something difficult done. And uh, without people, we, you know, you don't need leaders, right? Yeah. So, so it's all about motivating people towards a goal, whether it's in a military setting, whether it's in a corporate setting, whether it's in an entrepreneur setting. Uh, whenever you have a group of people, you need someone to, to be in that leadership role to guide and direct 
the team, you know, remove obstacles and, uh, you know, and keep, keep that, uh, that organization moving forward towards the goal. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And I, uh, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. Cause I always, uh, I kind of follow that up with, you know, but, but that's not the question you should be asking. The question you should be asking is, is how do I find the, the person with the great mix of both? Cause sometimes you need mm. to manage, sometimes you need to lead and you need to know when to play what role, right? Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. Um, at the end of the day, I mean, you know, for example, uh, you know, with my background and what I did, you know, early on in my career, you know, being a submarine officer, I had to be technically competent in, in, in my craft, right? I had to know my stuff to be able to run and operate that submarine in the condition, various conditions we dealt with. So I had to be competent in my craft. But on the other hand, I had people working for me that I had to maintain in those, you know, my relationships with those individuals and learn how they're motivated, what made them tick, uh, how to get the most out of them, uh, how to make sure that they were satisfied in their career path and satisfied in their jobs. And so, yeah, you have both elements in, in, in being a, a leader. You have to be, you know, ta- technically and tactically co- competent. Uh, but you also have to be dealing with the, you know, the fact that you're surrounded by people that are kind of looking your way to say, all right, what's next, boss? <laughs> right. So you have to be able to be able to do both. You really have to, um, you know, you have to have a, a foot in both canoes, as they say. So, yeah. Speaking of what makes people tick, I, I got to ask, um, you know, what made you want to, uh, to to be in submarines or was it something you just kind of lucked into? Yeah, no, I'm one of those um, strange guys that had the desire ever since I was a, a kid. Um, uh, you Before the pro- podcast, you mentioned you had a grandfather who was in the Army in uh, World War II. I had uh, both my grandfathers served in World War II, one in the Army, one in the Navy. And I was the curious kid that asked, you know, a ton of questions. I was just, you know, fascinated with, with World War II history and all the things that my grandfathers did. And then I, I kind of got into reading about the crews and the captains and the missions of World War II submarines, especially in the Pacific. And I was just fascinated by, you know, the role that they played and, and how they turned the tide of war, how they, uh, held up, you know, basically held up the Navy, uh, while we rebuilt after Pearl Harbor, the submarine crews and, uh, just fascinating. And, and I said to myself, you know, I want to do something like that. That is something that not many people do. I would love to do something like that. And, and of course, at the time, you know, it was the Cold War was in full swing. Reagan was president. They were building a bigger navy. We were going after the Russian submarines. Uh, there was this cat and mouse game going on between the Soviets and the, and the Americans. Tom Clancy's writing books. I'm like, this is it. I'm, I want to do it. <laughs> so it was one of those things like, yeah, this is what I wanted to do. I was born to do this. Uh, and it was a dream that I had as a, you know, as a, as a kid to do it. And I eventually got to do it. And, you know, not many people get to do their dreams. And, uh, you know, kids like, I want to be a firefighter. I want to be a police officer. I want to be a rock star. You know, I got to do my dream, which is really rare. And, uh, I was just, uh, honored to be able to do that and to serve, uh, like I did. It was just, it, it was phenomenal. I enjoyed, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, again, brother, I, I really appreciate it. And, and thank you for your service and being willing to, to, to do that because, as I said before, it takes a special breed. And I'm glad there's folks like you that exist that, that want to put themselves in that situation. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and because I think, you know, I mean, I think that is one thing with the submarine uh, fleet that, that 
I mean, you you all, you know, the, the SEALs talk about being silent professionals, and, and they are. Uh, but but you all, like, I mean, nine times out of ten, uh, especially doing what you did, you are absolutely, as much as you can be in a military structure, you all are as autonomous as it gets, right? Yeah, that's something that's, you know, people don't realize that about uh, submarines and the way we operate, but uh, especially the the type of submarine I was on. We, when we left port, we were um, all alone. So we were, you know, we operated uh, with no support. So we were hundreds of miles from any asset, you know, any uh, any allied asset. And we were hundreds of feet below the surface. We were out in the middle of nowhere, essentially. And we were hiding from both uh, potential Soviet threats and uh, and actually Allied assets as well. We we had to remain undetected from both sides, and uh, the only people that cared about us uh, were the people inside the boat. So we had to take care of ourselves. We had no one that was coming to save us. So um, you know we had you know the enemy was. I always say the enemy was outside the hull, right? And it wasn't just the Soviets. I mean, it was you know thousands of pounds of seawater that wanted to get in or wanted to crush us like a tin can and send us to the bottom of the ocean. The only thing that kept us safe was was our collective responsibility as a team to to operate that uh that submarine, you know, af- you know, effectively and safely and uh the right way. So, you know, every every person on board that submarine mattered. It didn't matter your rank if you were the low, lowest sailor on board or you were the captain we had this shared responsibility and shared vulnerability. So that meant there was a, there was a massive amount of positive peer pressure to train up and teach and get qualified the young sailors and young officers who came on board to because we wanted to make sure that they were not a danger, not a hazard uh, to the rest of the crew. So we were truly in it together and we were alone operating, like I said, uh, without a safety net and without uh, any backup or any support. So a very unique military um, type of um, operation. Yeah, no, it, it is. I mean, it, it just it's it, it's very interesting because you know again that's one of the things that uh, you know as you mentioned if it, as a marine you know if we're out on patrol and and things go south you know you can call in air support you can call in some sort of backup you know that you have some uh, some some support there you guys. You have to, and, and that takes that that takes a very unique set of of leadership skills and capabilities to to a you know trust those people, but b have them trust you at that level. So, how did you all really kind of gel together that that tightly? Yeah, so um, it's interesting. Uh, the so if you think about like, uh, you know, if you're, you're in a business, you're in a business setting, right? And you're maybe in an office someplace and, uh, you know, you, you go to work, you know, you work your eight hours, nine hours a day, you go home, you're with your family at night, you have the weekends off. So if you run into a conflict with an individual or, you know, think you're not seeing eye to eye with somebody, you know, you, you, you can go home, you can rest, you can put your feet up, you can think about the day, you know, have that uh, unwinding time on the weekends. And one thing that was unique about the environment on a submarine was it was 24-7. It was a 24-7 leadership commitment. 
uh, when you got deployed. So there was no go home and go, going home at night. There was no weekends off. It was 24-7 being a leader. In fact, I never heard my first name. Uh, every time we were deployed, I wouldn't hear my first name until we got back to, to shore, you know. So you're, you're constantly Lieutenant Rennie or Mr. Rennie. Uh, throughout the whole, um, you know, the whole patrol. But, um, so one of the things though that's unique about a submarine is the size of it. It's small, right? Relatively small. And we operated together, uh, in these, um, and we stood watch together. It didn't matter if you were an officer or senior enlisted, junior enlisted. We stood watches together. So in my case, we stood six hours watches and there was four, uh, watches a day, essentially. So you stood six hour watches. But you, you, you spent time with those same sailors day after day after day, and we really got to know each other. So we, we knew every, I knew everything about the people that worked for me. I knew past names of past girlfriends, uh, allergies. I knew, um, f- favorite foods, worst foods, best Christmas gift ever. You, you name it. We had long conversations. But the point is, is that we got to know each other and they knew me. I knew them. And I really think that that's, goes a long way in, in, in being able to be an effective leader. And something I've taken away is I've worked, you know, I worked 22 years in corporate America and now, uh, six years as an entrepreneur, uh, running a manufacturing business. But I've taken that to heart, like throughout my whole career is get to know people, let them get to know you and have a relationship, you know, with them. You know, if, if you want to build trust as a leader, people need to know who you are, what you stand for, and you need to know who they are and what they stand for. And I think that was the, unique environment of a tight spaces of the Tennessee. I was on the USS Tennessee. Uh, the, those tight spaces um, really allowed us to get to know each other and really bond and, and have our deep relationship with each other. Uh, oh, yeah. No, I love everything you said there, but kind of a sidebar there. I got to I got to ask, being a Tennessee and myself, did you all <laughs> ever play Rocky Top on the boat? Uh, I don't recall that we ever played Rocky Top, but um, we would get... Um, you know, uh, uh, country music stars would come out and, you know, we'd get uh, tours uh, of the boat and what have you. But we did have, uh, I did one time, um, we had what's a VIP cruise and I was the officer of the deck on the surface and uh, Lee Greenwood showed up and we sat and talked for three or four hours on the bridge of the Tennessee, which was, was pretty cool. So I got to meet, uh, you know, got to meet and, you know, spend some time with Lee Greenwood in a very unique setting. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> No, I love it. <laughs> sorry for the sidebar there. I, I, I'll, but yeah, I, I was just kind of curious about that is, is, uh, you know, how far y'all took the namesake there, but, uh, no. And, and I love what you said there, right. Uh, kind of backing up there where you talked about relationships. And this is one of the things I say is, is leadership is just another relationship and, and people are always a little, I don't want to say weirded out, but a little surprised to hear, you know, a Marine talk about relationship and love and leadership and things like that. But I mean, you can't do what we do talking about the military in general and not build relationships and, and, and really love one another. Right. Yeah. It's interesting that, um, you're, you're, you, you have the same, you know, I get the same reaction too when they hear I was former military. So I, I've led eight different uh, manufacturing businesses in my career. And when I show up, people are like, Oh, we heard you were military, you know, and they sort of expect command and control and for me to, you know, expect people to say, yes, sir, no, sir, uh, you know, jump how high, sir. Um, but it's just the opposite, you know, I mean, um, I think the military, 
uh, yeah, sure, there's a command and control structure. You know where everybody's rank is. But I think especially uh, how I served as on a submarine is that we had deep relationships with each other. We cared deeply for each other. Um, there was a camaraderie there, a brotherhood there. That's something I've I've never experienced again in in you know in in my civilian uh, career. It's just we did. We were there for each other. They we, these were my brothers. You know, I would do anything for them, and they would do anything for me. So yeah, it was a deep relationship. And yeah, I was an officer. Yeah, they were enlisted or they were senior enlisted, but that didn't really matter. Rank didn't really matter. It it mattered is what kind of person you were, and were, you know, were you competent? Were you capable? Were you a person of your word? Do you care? Those were just something that, that was, those are really important. And those things, same, same principles exist in the, you know, in business as well, too. You know, are you competent? Do you care? You know, uh, you know, th- these are, these are good leadership qualities that, uh, military does a great job reinforcing it. And, uh, you know, I think it surprises people when they hear, that it wasn't just command and control and just a you know an officer up there barking orders and everybody saying yes sir it was nothing like that i mean sure when when emergencies happened it was like that but we were all trained to do that you know and and everybody was you know when 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 things hit the fan we all knew what to do and we went into a more of a command and control structure but you know day to day operations it was relationships 100% yeah, yeah, well, exactly. And I, I always call it kind of the Hollywood myth of military leadership because, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you're right, 100%. The command and control piece, that had to be there. Right. But it wasn't always. And and, and I'm sure even on, on uh, you know, the, the submarine crews, you had some folks who kind of bought into it and were and tried to be command and control uh, 100%. But they, they probably, if it's anything like what we experienced in the Marines, those folks didn't last very long as leaders because they didn't get to buy in and those relationships with the people who were supposed to follow them right yeah yeah it's 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 that you know some people play the caricature of a leader they say well i'm I'm a leader now so i'm gonna do what i've either seen others do or what i think a leader should be and uh you know it's kind of a phony approach to leadership and people smell that right they see it uh and they don't trust somebody who isn't genuine and and uh so, you know, sometimes you hear about, you know, academy graduates, they call them ring knockers and, you know, they come in and say, well, I went to the academy, I, you know, I'm going to tell you what to do. And usually that doesn't go over very well. So, um, yeah, so you, you, I think, but even, even the same thing when you, uh, in, in, you know, in, in business leadership, if you're fake and phony, uh, people smell that. They see that. They don't, they don't trust you if you're acting non-genuine, you know, in, in saying, well, you know, I'm the boss now, this is what we're going to do, and I have all the answers, and people just kind of go, okay, well, we'll see. We'll see how long this lasts. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, no, 100%. 100%. I've ran into that, you know, they'll, they'll take the this course or that course, talking about you know, private sector, and, and, and like you said, it's that authenticity piece is, you know, they'll come out and, and they'll start saying, you know, all these new catchphrases. You're like, well, that, that sounds like everything I heard John Maxwell say. Right, and, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, buzzword bingo we used to we used to play with the, yep. we had we had one boss that uh it seemed like every course he went to he would start, you know, talking like that language from that course or that program or the book he just read and uh you know, we'd sit in the back of the room and play bingo, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, yeah, and, and you know, and the thing is 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 you know, again, I love John Maxwell. He's he he's written a ton of books. There's a lot of great information in there, but you know, you can't come out and do John Maxwell, the way John Maxwell does it, you have to find 
you have to find the the things that mean something to you and fit your leadership style and and are authentic and you can you can merge with your style, right? Oh yeah, yeah. No, you got to find your own voice. I mean, uh, I think I think uh, you know, as leaders, you you have to be you, you end up finding what's your your voice, what you're comfortable, how you what what your what your values are, what your standards are, what your expectations are. Uh, yeah, I, I can tell you this. Um, I got my first manufacturing plant at 32 years old, and I was probably too young and inexperienced to get my first manufacturing plant. And I, I, it took me a while to find my voice. I, I was uh, promoted to plant manager. I was young, and I thought the boss had to have all the answers, right? So I was embarrassed because I struggled because I didn't know all the answers. I was too, you know, I was fairly young. Uh, but through that first plant and that first four years of actually running a big operation, I I found my voice, and my voice was I realized that I didn't have to have all the answers. In fact, what I had to have is the right questions and and know who to talk to, and how to get input and how to get buy-in. And and what I what I learned is that um, is that the collective wisdom of a team is always so much stronger than one or two. Uh, individual managers or leaders. So I learned how to tap into the collective wisdom of a team, and I learned to not be so sensitive about the fact that I didn't know certain things, but just to be humble enough to go talk to the experts and learn from them and listen, and uh, and then take all that input and and then you know use that information to help make better decisions. And once I started doing that, leadership became much easier. Mm. Well, and ain't that the truth? I mean, uh, you, you talk about the wisdom of the, the team there. You know, uh, James Sirwicky wrote the book uh, Wisdom of the Crowd. And and uh, that's that I think is an essential read for any leader because it talks about exactly what you just were mentioning there is is relying on those folks around you because uh, I, and I agree, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of echoing what you just said there. But I agree with you 100 percent is. Sometimes, you know, we talk about the, the three most powerful words, uh, you know, in life or I love you or whatever. Well, I think the three most powerful words in leadership are, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really important. And, um, well, you know, and some people say, well, you you look weak as a, as a leader. And it's like, no, actually you, you look, you look humble as a leader and you're willing to, uh, you know, kind of, Step aside from your ego and actually listen and interact and, and, you know, you know, it's not like you're going to take, you're going to take everything that people tell you with, you know, and, and, and act on everything that people tell you. But it's, these are data points. As you talk to people, you learn things and, and you develop a better perception of what's happening. You know, I give you an example. When I take over a new business, um, I meet with as many people as I can. I try to meet with every employee, but I definitely meet with all of the, uh, you know, senior and experienced employees when I come into a new operation. And I ask three questions. I say, what's going right? What's going wrong? And if you were in my shoes, what would you do first? And so I have that same conversations with, with, you know, 80 to 100 or more people and I keep really good notes and what I find is that there are common themes and common threads. So there's two or three things that need to get done right away and everybody agrees with it. So it's, it's an amazing way to tap into this, you know, collective knowledge. And, uh, uh, and, and in most cases, those two or three things are pretty easy to take care of. And that's really has always been a surprise to me is when I've had these meetings, 
I come up with, you know, these two or three things and then I actually implement them. I, I actually put them right into place. And what a couple of things. One is that when that happens, people say, oh, wow, this guy, this new boss is actually a he's listening and B, he's taking action on 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 things that we say need to be addressed. And I think that's um, that's powerful because you start building that trust on day one when you start doing things like that. So. Um, yeah, it, it's, you know, it's sort of a, if you will, a, a little bit of a forced process, but it really, really helps me get to know people. They get to know me. And then I learn all this stuff about the business in the early days of when, when I first take over a business. You know, sadly, a lot of leaders come in and they take over a business and they go in their office and they, they do emails or they get on phone calls, but they don't, um, they don't engage their team. They don't, they don't uh, get that kind of feedback or information. And they just assume they have all the answers. Well, the, the truth is the people that have all the answers are the ones that have been there for a long time. And you have to, you really want to tap into that, uh, that, that knowledge base. Cause if you don't, I mean, you're just, you're just swinging in the wind, you know? So you're not going to, you're not going to anything done that's going to be effective. Yeah. No, again, a hundred percent. And I'll say what, what is, uh, maybe a little bit worse than that is you have folks who will come in and, and ask the questions like you did. And, and I think the component, the key component to what you said is you use that information to, to inform your decisions. Yeah. Uh, but, but the worst part is when you have somebody come in and, and does that is because somebody told them that's what they should do. Oh yeah. And then they go <laughs> in and they try to start force feeding their own agenda anyway. Yeah. 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 That's it. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Cause uh, you know, um, I've observed, observe leaders over the years and I like I'll see a new leader coming to a business and I'll see them kind of doing some of the right stuff they're asking a lot of questions they're spending time on the on the shop floor they're getting to other people and I'm like wow this is going to be a great leader you know I really have high high hopes and then they'll just sort of disappear <laughs> they'll go <laughs> off in the you know into their office or their you know conference room or they get busy with life and um and then you just never see them again and uh or or like you say they they start implementing something that doesn't make any sense that, that that doesn't reflect on what's really truly happening uh in that business and what that business needs uh and then you're just kind of like and then everybody's just you know uh, frustrated they're you know they're they're like okay well there's another boss that we just have to survive essentially because you know it's not someone that really cares about us and is trying to do the right thing they're They've got an agenda and we just have to survive long enough for when they're going to leave. And, and that's what a lot of the times happen. You know, I, I spent 22 years, as I mentioned, in, in corporate America and, and most employees are just trying to survive the, the newest boss that just showed up. And usually it's a three to five year cycle. So they're like, all right, well, I got three to five years to ride out this guy until the next person. And hopefully we'll get a better person next time. And this is the reason why engagement is so low you know in in america is that uh yeah we've got we've got managers and leaders that aren't engaged with their employees and employees aren't engaged in the business i mean uh and unfortunately it's all it's all too common so yeah exactly unfortunately it is all uh too common i couldn't have said that better myself and um you know, but here's the great thing, folks, right? Uh, we have some resources here to help you not be in that position because John has written a few uh, great books. Um, I have The Watch, Becoming a Leader Worth Following, which I think is is, is a great title, especially the Becoming a Leader Worth Following uh, piece there because, um, you know, there's a lot that gets written about leadership, but for some reason, people keep skipping over followership at their own peril. So I like that you included that. And then 
Your latest book is All in the Same Boat, Lead Your Organization Like a Nuclear Submariner. Um, and then you have a new book uh, coming out. Uh, when, when does the You Have the Watch uh, journal come out? Yeah, so that's a guided journal, and that should be out uh, probably early next year. So it takes some of the ideas of uh, my first book, I Have the Watch, and gives you a um, a daily um, – well, there's a theme every week, and it's a daily exercise uh, to become a better a better leader. Uh, and it goes through all, a lot of the themes that were in the first book that I wrote. And uh, w- one of the things I heard from a lot of people is that they said – you know, your, your first book was almost like a, uh, you know, I could read, I could read a chapter or read a bit every day and it was like a daily reminder or a daily, um, you know, almost a, and a bit of devotion towards leadership. And so I decided to take that to the next level and actually create a guided journal for, yeah, for new leaders, for, um, leaders going into a new role, for any leader that's in a role. And it just helps you think about some of these, elements of leadership that do that you might forget as you get tied up or, or caught up in your day-to-day life. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. Yeah. Um, let's talk about all in the same boat here for a second, because, um, you know, I, I like, uh, I like some of the themes that you have here. I love the chapter titles you have and, and, uh, you, you come out strong in chapter one with run to the fire. Uh, let's talk about that for a second. What do you mean when you say run to the fire? Yeah. So, you know, uh, when we think of fires, you know, um, you know, all of us have been to school. We've, we've worked in companies. So when there, we have these fire, fire drills, right? So, uh, the alarm goes off and what do we do? We all run outside and we muster to where the muster stations are and we wait. And then we, then the professionals come in and they clear the building and they say, Hey, you know, the fire's out. You guys can go back to work. So everybody's kind of used to that analogy. Well, on a submarine at sea, we're actually all trained as firefighters. And the reason being is you can't call 911. As I mentioned, we're all alone out there in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, right? So if something bad happens, we have to take care of ourselves. And, and one of the things that the Navy does really well is train you to um, ignore your natural instincts. So your natural instincts are to move away from fire. Fire is dangerous, right? But on the submarine, we were trained to run towards the fire. And the reason for it is that uh, you want to put out that fire before it gets larger. So you want to attack the fire while it's small. And, uh, because of course, obviously on a submarine, if, if that fire spreads, it can, um, you know, it can, uh, spread, uh, gases, uh, dangerous gases throughout the ship. It can light, light up weapons, uh, volatile materials. I mean, it can be a disaster. And it has been. If you look throughout history, there's been submarine fires and they all end in death of many of the crew members. So we're trained to run towards the fire and put it out when it's small. So you can imagine my surprise when I come to corporate life after serving as a submarine officer. I come to corporate life and I realized that <clears throat> there was an opposite mindset in, in corporations or in businesses. And that is when a problem occurs, people tend to move away from it. So uh, a lot of people are thinking about their career and career preservation, especially leaders that might just be focused on their next promotion, their next job. So when something bad happens, people tend to move away from it. And these problems end up growing and becoming larger. And so what I talk about in that chapter is the idea of, of learning how to run towards problems and, and being able to resolve them before they get out of control. Because typically problems are like fires, right? If they're, if they're unattended, they're going to grow and they're going to get dangerous and they could be deadly to your business. 
So, you know, again, part of what I do in the book and when I, when I'm teaching, uh, I do a lot of, uh, talking and teaching on leadership. So I talk about the idea of <clears throat> running towards problems and resolving them before they get out of control. It's a really important, uh, part, piece of leadership. And I'll give you one story. I took over one business and, um, I realized I had very high warranty costs and very high customer concessions. And I, and I realized right away why that was. They had a problem with a product that was failing in the field. And it was a design problem with the product uh, in that they used uh, indoor components in an outdoor application. So these components would rust over time and just kind of fall apart. And then the, the product would fail. And uh, the other thing that I found out was everybody knew about it. <laughs> everybody. <laughs> it was it was a known problem throughout the organization. Of and there, there was no easy solution. Um, you know, we could, you know, it was going to cost millions to redesign the product and retest it. Uh, there was no way to fix, uh, you know, everything that had been shipped over the years. So I ended up having to make the decision to kill the product line, exit the product line. And, and as part of that, I had to go visit all the customers that we had sold this product to and, you know, and apologize, provide, you know, talk about how we're going to provide support going forward, uh, and tell them that we we're moving out of the business. And it was a very, um, painful lesson of what happens when a business ignores a problem that lets it get out of control. And I, and unfortunately, I was the guy that had to clean up the mess of, pr- of prior management. So, you know, I, I do encourage people that um, when there is a problem, uh, just like a, a small fire in a submarine, you want to be running towards it, not running away from it. So you have to ignore your natural instincts for career preservation or whatever it is, and you got to move towards the problem, make sure you address it. That's the role of a leader. You know, you're you're almost like a like a, a lookout on the bridge, looking out for hazards. And when those hazards happen, you've got to act quick and make sure that you address it and take care of it. Yeah. No, I, I love it. And I love that story because it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, uh, my my first leadership slash management role. I was, you know, maybe about 16 or so roughly. And, and I got put in charge of about four guys who were literally twice my age. They were in their mid-30s. <laughs> Well, it was it was at a uh, a place uh, we we the the pickers would pick the tomatoes out in the fields and they would bring them into the shed for sorting and packaging and and I ran what they called the box loft, which as it sounds was the loft where boxes were made, mm. and so we had these uh, you know high speed box folding machines that we had from Georgia Pacific, and what I noticed when I I first got there was uh, that. Nobody knew how to fix these machines except for the Georgia Pacific tech who was there. And so whenever the line would drop, uh, we had to scramble. We, we would make up extra boxes because, you know, things would always happen. And we'd have to scramble and we'd have to uh, unstack the boxes, put them on the line so we could keep running. And then when the machine came back up, we had to scramble again to, A, keep up with the line, and B, make extra boxes for our next emergency batch. And, and I just, I, I got to speaking with the, the Georgia Pacific Tech and, uh, you know, I asked him, I said, how hard are these things to actually fix? And he says, well, they're not. Let me show you. Mm. And, and he showed me and, and I got to the point where I could fix the machines and get them back up and running. And we didn't have to be down for 30, 45 minutes at a time because, you know, I could make simple repairs. Mm. And it, it caught on with one of the other guys that was there who was running the machine and we taught him how to do it. And our times went way down. And and we had a much smoother period of operation because we figured out how to fix the issue versus waiting for somebody else to come in and fix it. Yeah. We we, we cut out all that scramble time. We we cut out I mean, and it was such a headache anytime the machine would go down, 
and we got rid of the headache. And and that's kind of what you're talking about here is if we hit this thing head on, it may be a difficult learning curve. It may be a difficult problem to, to, to put out the fire, but once you put it out, everything's so much better, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. So you, you, you're not dealing with something that's growing out of control. You, you've taken care of the problem. Uh, and in your case, you know how to take care of the problem if it happens again. You know, I think that's, that's really, really important. And, you know, I should say, I should caution one thing is listeners might be thinking, Oh, okay. So we need to be firefighters. We need to run around solving problems. And, and I would say this is that a leader's responsibility is to create a stable, smooth running business, right? Firefighting should be, uh, the exception and not the rule. You know, I've I've been to businesses where everyone's running around like a chicken with their head cut off and there's just chaos everywhere. That's not the, fi- the type of firefighting I'm talking about. I'm really talking about, you know, you have a smooth running business and when there's a problem, you 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 attack it with vigor and take care of it before it gets bigger. That's that's really what I'm talking about. Yeah, a hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. Um. So I'm going to move ahead here. I'm going to skip a chapter here and get to chapter three because I love this title, uh, Communicate with Precision. And if <laughs> I'm going to play Nostradamus here. And if your experience is anything like mine, this is probably the one that most of the folks you run into think that they are doing a masterful job of, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you you know, we communication is a funny, funny business. You know, we think we communicate properly. and uh, But what we communicate uh, with another person, they hear it and they internalize it sometimes completely different from what we intended. So that's the funny thing about the English language. We can do our best to communicate to other people, but how they internalize it is a whole nother world, right? So we don't really know how people process information, it, that, you know, especially as a leader, the people that work for us. And they process it in all sorts of different ways, but they process it through their own filters of their, their biases, their experiences, their, you know, everything that they have, who, the, who they are, they're going to be filtering your message, right? And so the Navy had a pretty effective way of doing communication. Now it's extremely formal and then, and it's hard to get used to, but once you get used to it, you see the, um, I don't even, what do you want to say? That you see the wisdom in it. So right. we had this thing called verbi- verbatim repeat back. Verbatim repeat back, excuse me. So what that meant was when you gave a command, the, uh, the person hearing the command would repeat the command back 100% word for word, and then they would say, I, or yes, yes, sir. So for example, uh, I'd be the officer deck and I gave a command to the helmsman. The helmsman is the guy that, that steered the, steered the boat. And I would say left full rudder steady course one eight zero, and he would say left full rudder steady course one eight zero I sir. So what it meant was that a couple of things happened there. One is I I know that that sailor heard heard the command, he internalized that command, and then he repeat repeated back the command to me uh, in in the same manner, which tells me that um, that it's likely going to be executed properly. Right, because he heard the command, internalized it, and he and he repeated back the command. So, you know, as I talk about in the book, this is not something that you typically would use in a business. It's a very formal communication method, but um, it was a very, very good way to, to communicate on a submarine with, you know, highly complex, very dangerous stuff. You want to make sure you're communicating with precision all the time. But if you think about it, you take this into your your normal business, right? Um, how many times, you know, if, if I think back in my career, how many times have I given a command to somebody or given a, a project to someone 
and they get they I think they understand what's going on, you know, and then we 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 you know, we leave them to it, they get going on it and you know, we come visit a couple weeks later and we find out it's not it's going completely different. It's not exactly what what I expected. It's it's being done a completely different way. And what what I've what I've found over the years is that the most misunderstandings happen when projects are first assigned, when, when or, you know, when when uh, tasks are first assigned. And so, you know, what I talk about in the book is just the same thing with um, the verbatim repeat back, uh, that kind of concept, is that you, you, you make sure that people have understanding of what, you know, if you're given a project or given a task, make sure they understand it. Have them, have them talk through it. Have them ask questions. Let them internalize it. That's really important that they internalize what you're asking them to do and they understand fully not only what has to get done, but why it has to get done. And then the second thing I say is that follow up on a regular basis to make sure that there isn't still any misunderstanding. Because it's the worst thing when you get three months three months down the road and you find out that the, the project is not going as you expected or the task is not being done as as you expected. So um, the uh, the Navy had a great terminology. We said ex- uh, expect what you inspect, and so I encourage leaders to when you give an assignment just to follow up on that assignment and check up regularly to make sure it's going you know the way you expect it would be so that's part of part of is learning some of those lessons in terms of yeah okay the navy was a little bit formal with their communication but there's some wisdom in how they did it that way yeah no again and i love that because you know that's what i i try to stress to folks is uh, you know we, we often think that communication is about what is said and and yes that's a critical component of it but Communication is really more about what is heard than what is said. And I think that's exactly what you're saying, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. So what 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 you said is what your intention and what they heard is is again through all their filters and biases. And, and so it may not it may be 180 degrees from what you expect. So yeah. yeah. No, yeah. I love it. So I'm gonna skip ahead a couple more chapters here. Um develop a no escape mindset. What what does that mean? <laughs> Yeah, so um, that's that's kind of a unique. So we were talking about earlier about what life was like on a submarine. It was twenty four seven. It was seven days a week. There was no uh, days off. And um, one of the things that we that you had to do as a submarine officer is that you had to deal with the crew that you were deployed with. So if you think about it in business, sometimes we can. Um, yeah, if there's an employee that's not doing their job or we're not getting along with a peer, we can. We can avoid them. We can fire them. We can, you know, reassign them. There's all sorts of things we can do to get get away from people that we're having issues with or problems with. In um, on a submarine, there was no escape from that. You had to confront issues directly. You had to deal with challenging uh, sailors uh, uh, directly. You couldn't allow problems to just. Uh, you couldn't avoid problems. You had to confront those problems. There was no escaping. That and and also too with peers, uh, as you had issues, you had to resolve those. You couldn't let let problems linger for long periods of time. And yeah, you know, I tell a story uh, in that in the book about a sailor I had that was a problem. He he, he essentially was uh, he was full of mischief. Every time he was bored, he was getting into trouble. So um, you know, I tell stories of him you know, hiding uh, on field day. Field day was the Saturday mornings we cleaned the entire uh, submarine. And uh, and my my department was assigned the engine room upper level. And 
And really what my assignment was every every Saturday was trying to find this uh, petty officer McKinley. He was always hiding. He was he 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 would just he would find his ways to he was a smaller guy and he would he would jam himself up in the overhead and see how long it took for people to find him. So it just he was just a problem child for me. But one of the things I realized uh, is that a he was probably the smartest guy in my department, and b whenever he got bored, he he just he just got into trouble. He was just you know trying to see what he'd get away with, and so what I found was with him at least is uh, I I I I found ways to keep him challenged, and a couple things is I I had he was my best reactor operator, so I had him training all the new reactor operators as they came through, so he became. You know, our master at teaching people how to how to how to operate the reactor, and he also was amazing at maintenance. And so, no matter what, the toughest maintenance assignments I made sure to get the get him to him. And uh, you know, those couple of things kept his brain engaged, kept him you know kept him you know engaged and excited and motivated. And he became my best sailor. You know, he went from you know being a problem child and someone I was always worried about and always had to, you know, look for him and make sure he wasn't getting in trouble again. He turned into being my best sailor. But it was this idea of not escaping, not uh, not putting off this issue, not, you, you want to, I've, you know, you have to confront these things and you have to solve them. You have to uh, get the best out of the people that you have assigned to you versus, you know, just sort of throwing people by the wayside. So it's not escaping your your uh, your problems, your your challenges, your challenging employees, is your your challenging relationships. It's actually confronting them and, and working them out. Yeah, I uh, know. Again, great story, great story. Because as you're describing that young man, uh, it, it's like you were describing me. Um, you know, I mean, that was it. Is is <laughs> yeah. when I uh, when I get bored, you know, that was all through school. When I get bored, I'm the I'm the class clown. Yep. Um, yep. You know, the the whole nine yards. And it was the teachers, it was the leaders that that figured that out and how to engage with me, and and I performed well for them. You know, I, I'm I'm convinced to this day. There's some of the teachers I had that, uh, you know, are are probably think that I, I should consider myself lucky to be living indoors these days. And then <laughs> some of them are like, yeah, every, all, everything you're doing right now makes sense. I saw all of that in you. And, and uh, no, so I love that. I love that story a lot. Um, so before we uh, kind of work to close out a little bit here, uh, I, I've got to hit on chapter eight here. Now, listeners, mm-hmm. again, we're talking about uh, in particular here, all in the same boat. Um, and I highly encourage you to go grab a copy of it. But but chapter eight is titled "Celebrate the Tough Times," and <laughs> and and that may seem a little counterintuitive to most folks, because you want to celebrate the good times. But why should we celebrate tough times? Yeah, uh, you know, so it's natural tendency of humans that we don't want uh, difficulties, we don't want challenges, we don't want problems in our life. We want everything to be you know sunshine and rainbows and and cold beer and all that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. But, you know, it's, it's those times that we are challenged, those times that we face the, the, the hardest, you know, challenges of our life are the times that we grow the most. It's the time that we, um, we set new benchmarks for ourselves mentally, right? So, um, you know, I always say that it, as a leader, if you go through the toughest time in your career and you come out on top, you're able to lead a business through a really tough time, you come out on top. You know, nothing else really bothers you from that point forward. You have a new benchmark, a new high water mark that um, says that I'm fully capable of handling anything that comes my way. I have dealt with the worst of the worst situation, and I was able to uh, to, to weather that storm 
and um, you know lead the business through that difficult period. I know a lot of people are dealing with uh, COVID, for example. COVID has thrown a monkey wrench into many of our businesses. I'm an entrepreneur, and uh, believe me, there's been global and local uh, impact by this uh, coronavirus, and so. You know, we've been we've been fighting it for two years now. So a lot of us are are tired. We're exhausted. We've been you know in, the, in on the front lines for two years dealing with these challenges. But you know, at the end of the day, when this thing clears and the, and you know the the sun comes out and the storm's over, you know we're gonna be we're gonna be proud that we led our businesses, we led our teams, we led our people through these uh, through these tough times, and we're gonna really. You know, we're going to put that in the back of our mind, like, "Hey, I I made it through that. I can make it through anything." And in in, the, in this chapter, I uh, I tell the story of my grandfather, who was in um, as a sailor in World War II. He was involved in the Battle of the Atlantic, and I tell the story about in um, in one particular battle. It was in the middle of a massive storm, North Atlantic storm, uh, storm in the North Atlantic, and his uh, he was on a destroyer escort, which is a tiny ship uh, with a crew of less than two hundred. And um, they were assigned uh, pro- uh, Operation Teardrop, and they were trying to stop what we thought were um, 30 or so German U-boats were coming across the Atlantic with what we thought were um, V-1 uh, rockets that were going to uh, do a bombing run on uh, Boston and New York City. And so he was part of the assigned uh, team, to, uh, the, the ships and squadrons, to go stop these submarines. And in the middle of a massive storm, he was in a major battle uh, in the North Atlantic uh, with two German U-boats. Their boat, the USS Frost, their ship, I should say, the USS Frost and the USS Stanton. And uh, they fought throughout the night. And at the end of the the night, uh, they were able to sink both German submarines. And if you know anything about submarine versus ship warfare, typically the submarines win. Uh, So it's an amazing story. But... But this is something that my grandfather did in his young life, you know, uh, and uh, one of the things about my grandfather from that point on, he was the calmest, he was the nicest, calmest man you've ever met because he had been through some really tough times and the rest of his life was simple and easy compared to what he went through during that storm in the North Atlantic battling two German submarines. And so I think these, these, uh, Tough times are tough. They're hard. They they take the most. Uh, they you know they, we have to ap- operate our absolute best. But you know we come away with that a changed person. And in, in the case of my grandfather, he came away as a you know, a very calm, relaxed individual where nothing bothered him because nothing was as bad as that night in the North Atlantic. So I think you know I think those tough times give us a new perspective. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you a hundred percent, and I, and I love that, and you know, because it, it's true. You know, I remember uh, early on in my civilian career, I had a, uh, I had a leader who was was uh, I, I'm I'm actually probably shouldn't even refer to them as a leader. I had a manager who was known to to yell and scream at folks mm. quite a bit, mm. and you know, it was it was one of those things that it just didn't bother me at all, and and people were like, how? It's like, look. I, I've been in the ring with with Dobermans and Rottweilers. Chihuahuas <laughs> don't bother me at all. <laughs> you know, that's it. Uh, but, yeah. but yeah, I mean, and and again, that's it. And and the other thing is 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 uh, you know, I think there's nothing worse than making it through that tough time, not taking the time to celebrate it, not taking the time to reflect yeah. on it, yeah, and and letting those lessons you learn wither on the vine. 
and then have something tough come up again and you have to relearn all that stuff again, right? Yeah, yeah, you really, yeah, in a way you do. Um, yeah, yeah, you're right. And, and I think we tend to, you know, it's funny because, you know, as leaders, uh, you know, there's promotion opportunities, right? And everybody wants the, the cherry assignment. Oh, I want that plant. That's the easy plant. Make a lot of money. You know, I don't have a lot of problems. I've always been the guy that wants the hard, the hard plant, the one that's not making money and the one that's got a morale issue. And the one I've always been attracted to like, all right, give me the tough assignment. Cause I want, I really want to learn from that. I want to grow from that. I want to, I want to make a difference. And, um, you know, as leaders, you know, and, and people listening in, go for those tough assignments, go for those challenges, go for the things that people say can't be done. Cause that's where you come out and you, you, it's, you really learn a lot about yourself in those times. And, uh, I really do highly encourage people seek out challenges in their life and not to get comfortable with easy assignments. I think we, we become better. We become more interesting people having survived difficult times than, than if our life is simple and easy. And, and, and I don't know. I just, I just think that that's really important for, for growth. And, uh, you know, you, you, you know, think about it. When, when a storm comes, right? And you're, you're out on, you're out at sea and the storm comes, you want that grizzled, uh, you know, officer on the con that has been through the tough times, right? You want them, you want the guy that has the experience or the girl that has the experience to, to take control in that, uh, time frame. And, and, you know, I have a lot of scars. I have a lot of battle scars from 30 years of leadership, but I think that makes me a better leader today because I have withstood some really tough times and I've, I've gained a lot of learning through those experiences. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I, I, I love, I love that. I love uh, this entire conversation we've had here. And I know, uh, we've ran a little bit longer here than planned, but, uh, you know, it's been great. I've had a blast. Uh, I'm curious, you know, we covered a lot of ground. Is there anything that we didn't get a chance to cover that you'd like to leave listeners with before we close out? Yeah, I would just say this is that, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that leadership is a people business, but I would say this is that people bring our businesses to life. You know, a lot of times uh, these MBA programs and leadership training, we talk about planning and strategy and, you know, and, and, and all these goal setting and what have you. But really, at the end of the day, it's, a, it's people that bring our plans to life. And if we forget that, uh, then we're going to be unsuccessful as leaders. So we want to make sure that we understand that it's people. It's the people around us. It's our teams. They're going to take those ideas, those plans, those, uh, those, those concepts and bring them to life. And so we got to never forget that. Mm, that is well said. Very well said. Um, so, John, so folks want to you know, find out more about your books. They want to find out more about you, maybe hire you to come speak, um, you know, check out your podcast. We didn't get a chance to talk about your podcast. Um, where can they where can they find all that information out for you? Yeah, it's simple. It's everything's on my website. It's johnsrenny.com and there's links to the books, links to the, uh, all my social media. My podcast is Deep Leadership and there's links to that there. But, uh, in Deep's Leadership, we're doing the sim- similar thing as you do here. We interview, uh, leaders, entrepreneurs, uh, both military business and, uh, we try to gain insight from different experiences from authors and leaders around the country. So, uh, it's called Deep Leadership, but everything is at johnsrenny.com. Yeah, no, I love it. And, and folks, uh, you know, definitely check out the podcast. There's, uh, I was looking through the guest list. There's a few folks I've had on the show here, uh, Becky Morrison and, and Bo Bravo. Uh, oh, nice. those, 
Yeah. And, and uh, but it's, it's very well done. Uh, you know, I haven't listened to every episode, but I've listened to, to a few and, and, you know, folks again, add, add it to your toolkit. You know, the, this podcast, uh, John's podcast, you can never have too many uh, resources in, in your toolkit because you never know when you're going to need which one. So make sure you add that uh, to your subscription list and, uh, and and just kind of expand your horizons that way. Um, John, man, again, uh, appreciate your service, brother. Appreciate you being with us. Appreciate you having the great conversation you've had with us uh, here on the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Just thank you very much for your time. Hey, thanks, Earl. I really had a good time and I appreciate it. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that... I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Electric Cast. Electric Cast.